0: This episode of Safe Space Radio is brought to you by the Learner Foundation and listeners like you.
1: Anne here with a quick request for you before we start the show. Gabe, my producer, and I are always trying to come up with ways to improve Safe Space Radio. And one thing that would really help us do that is to hear from you about what's working for you about the show and what you'd like us to try. If you could take a minute to answer a short five-question survey after you've heard this show on refugee women in Maine, we would be so grateful. You can find it by visiting safespaceradio.com and clicking on the button that says survey. It won't take long, and it'll help us keep pushing the show in new and exciting directions. Thank you in advance for your response, and thanks for listening. This is WMPG. My name is Anne Hallward. I'm a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio, a show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we could talk about them more. Today is the second show in our new series on women in Maine who have come here as refugees from war. I'm hoping to learn about what that experience was like and how differences in language, culture, race, and religion impact women in particular as they make a new home here. My guest is Joanna, who arrived here from Burundi three months ago. Burundi is a country in East Africa that is currently undergoing escalating civil unrest. Burundi was colonized by the Germans and then the Belgians, and gained independence in 1962. Since that time, there have been multiple outbreaks of violence between Hutus and Tutsis, which have been classified as genocide. And this year, disputes over the legality of the president's third term have led to widespread protests. Prior to leaving the country, Joanna was working for a service agency in the capital city, Burjumbura. Welcome to Safe Space Radio, Joanna. Thank you. I feel like I want to say welcome to Maine as well. It's so recent. Thank you, tell me a little bit about the work you were doing for the service agency
0: in Burundi before you left. Um, most of the time, I would be sent up country to collect stories of women who are living extreme poverty or have been suffering um assault and things like that and you are collecting their stories to do what with them um to write them down and share them so that people can know that Burundian women are making progress.
1: And when you say that, what do you mean? What kind of progress did
0: you see firsthand? In Burundi, women are not inc- uh, included financially. The man is the one who has all the money, and that's mostly seen in um, rural Burundi. You mean legally women cannot own property? Is that what you mean? No, not legally, but in the tradition, like uh. in the culture, um, the man is the one who works and keeps the money and the woman just raises um, the children. And so it was very important to make sure that women can also generate their own money and contribute to the life of the community, and that's what we were doing. And I understand
1: that part of what precipitated your departure from the country is that you were arrested. What were the circumstances that you were arrested?
0: Um, when the current president was elected a third illegal time. Um, There was a lot of protests um, and demonstrations by the population, and in my neighborhood, I was seeing a lot of uh, young men being hurt, um, being shot, and also being tear-gassed. And my mother is a nurse, so we opened our house to these men, and when we saw someone who was shot or um, hurt. On our street, you would tell, that, tell, tell him to get inside the house really quickly, and my mom would give him first aid care. What we wanted to do was just to make sure that no one is going to die on our street. Is the fighting and the protesting happening right in front of your house? It was happening in our neighborhood. And so, yes, we would get people on our street um, running away from the police or trying to get to confront the police.
1: I can imagine that seeing that was pretty scary. Seeing people shot coming into your home—what what was that like for you?
0: Most must people that were coming in our house were not actually shot, but just uh, received stones, um, because they used stones as projectiles, or tear gassed most of them. Um, shot victims. that was just one person. There's a lot of young people in the in the city that organized themselves to demonstrate. One of their leaders was um, that young man who was shot by the police. When we offered our help to him, we didn't know. And the police came later to ask us where that guy was, which we didn't know. And they started to harass us. And what we would hear would be in the middle of the night at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock, people speaking softly outside of our compound and saying things and singing songs of um that say things like let's rape that um maybe i'm not going to say that it was just scary because it's the middle of the night and Bujumbura is a very quiet city so everything you can hear like loudly so you're Lying
1: in your bed at night, you've helped this opposition leader. The police have already come by the house and sort of asked you questions in a threatening way. Mm. And now you overhear these kind of threatening songs
0: being sung. Mm. And um, the police came and asked us why we were behaving like we had a hospital. And we said it wasn't the case. We're just trying to offer our help because we know how to do that. And the policeman said, my advice to you, just mind your business. And we didn't think much of it. And then when that started to happen at night, sometimes you'd also smell like weed being smoked outside of our compound, which is absolutely forbidden in, in Burundi. You can't do that. And you we were like, who are these people who can do that? They, they really feel like they are untouchable or something like that. And I have three dogs at home, and they would get really angry and bark all night uh, because of those people. I think a few days after those um, nightly visits started, one of my dogs managed to get out uh, on the street because there's these little um, ditches, and so that she went through and she barked and was I could hear that she was very angry, and I heard the sound of the sound of a uh, a wooden mortar, you know when you're pounding something. And my dog didn't bark again, and I was very, very scared. I was thinking, what, what's happening? Is she, maybe she's hiding or something? And I really wanted to get outside and see what, what was happening, but I couldn't. My mom was very angry with me. She was saying, stay in the house. Um, so the next morning, I went outside to look for my dog, and all I saw was um, blood on, in the driveway, and we have a guard. And I was asking him, where where, where was my dog? Did did she just bled and then ran away? Maybe she's going to come back. And he told me that they had cracked her head open and that he buried her. Mm. So when that happened, I knew that that was serious, that they were not afraid of anything, that um, something bad would happen to us. So I told my mom that we should... Um, probably go and sleep at my uncle's house. Um, I had to work the next that day, so I went to work, and I had to also come back home to so we could gather a few things. Um, and was it just you and your mom living at home? Yeah. So I w- I picked her up at her uh, at her office, and we drove home. It was around six p.m. and. I saw that there were people on our veranda and I looked at them and they looked like people who are, well, one of them had a a police uh, uniform, so I was scared and I was like, this is not going to happen. So I was ready to uh, back, back away and go back on the street. And as I was doing that, there was already two policemen closing the gate on us. So they asked us to get outside of the car. We did. And they told us that they wanted to search the house and make sure that that man we helped wasn't there. We told them that he wasn't there, and I asked them if they could come back maybe the next day because it's already 6 p.m. It's past working hours, and they should not do that uh, that late. And that's when they hit They hit me. Um, it was... I punched right behind my ear and I was I was just shocked and my mom started to scream too and one of them called a car we got in the car and we drove away to um, the Burundian secret services we got inside um, and I was asking them why we were there that it didn't make sense that we would be here Um, That's a little bit too much. Why we can talk about this? Um, I was trying to just. um, It sounds like you
1: were being so strong and careful and like really, yeah, being rational.
0: Yes, I was trying because to me it didn't make sense. So, we got into an office, and there was one man that was there, um, and he was kind of smiling and and uh, chuckling. He said, "Oh, I see. You are you very scared? Um sorry for the bad manners of of these people." And he said, "Just sit down and we can talk." And I was hopeful because he seemed to be more um, put together than those men. And he said basically that he was going to ask me just one simple question: "Where was Patrick?" And Patrick's, um, turned out to be the man that we helped. And I told him that we didn't know any Patrick, um, that we know who he's talking about, but we don't know him personally. And we never heard of him ever again after that, that, that day. Um, I said that we could try and help them find him. I would not do that. I was just trying to, um, negotiate that. And he said that I was out of the question and i was still trying to talk and say something and he left the office so we were just there um my mom and i just the two of us they left us there for hours i don't know because they um they took they took our, our jewelry and watches and telephones and all of that and from time to time we would hear someone screaming or someone uh, pleading and things like that far away and then we would be really scared We had absolutely no idea what time it would be, but I think um, maybe 9 p.m. or something like that. uh, Suddenly, some four men came in. Uh, I recognized two of them being uh, the policemen that closed the gate on us when I was home, and also there was also two other men with them. One had shorts, and I saw something that looked like Blood stains on his shorts, um, which scared me. And then, um, those two men who were not in uniforms were giving those policemen orders, and they were they were saying, "Okay, now we're going to hit them and and try to see if they they're not going to talk." And so that's when I I noticed that they had. Um, How do you call them? Metallic uh, pipe hose. And they told my mom and I to undress. At that moment, I I was already sure that something bad was happening, so I just did it. I didn't even hesitate or anything like that. And they beat us for a long time. It seemed to me that it was forever and there was a moment that i remember is when um when they they took ropes to tie us up they would put our arms behind our back elbow to elbow and so i would lose balance and not be able to just stand up or anything and so when i fell on the ground and one of those people of those men were beating us and when i looked at him i saw that i stopped being human He was looking at me as if he was looking at a piece of furniture or a rock. I was not me anymore. That's the moment when I saw that uh, it was done. That it's just a question of time, and I would not be alive anymore. And the two men who were giving orders, um, they said that we were... I don't know if I can use this word, but they, the, he said that we were Tutsi whores and that we were good for nothing but be pregnant with Hutus in bonerakure And so they told the men in police uniforms to have fun with us and make sure that we would be... Um, he said, "Make have fun with them. I'm sorry, I'm trying to translate as I go make fun with them and by the time by the time we need to get to get the job done make sure they can't even remember their names so they left the two men left and we were uh, left with those men in police uniforms and they started urinary, uh, urinating on us and that's when they also raped me Actually, no, that's when I was raped. Because when, when I say it's, it's when I was raped, it's it sounds like I did something, but I didn't. So that that's when they raped me. Um, as it was happening, I was thinking about other stuff. I was trying to think about something else and not be there. Um, I was thinking about... Because I know that that was just a step just one step away from from being killed and I was just thinking about it's just so funny because I was thinking about silly things I was thinking about my room and how messy it was and I was thinking about my friends going in my room to get my stuff for cleaning it and I would think about who would take care of my remaining dogs who would take my car and things like that that really don't makes sense, but that's what I was thinking about. And I think I was so into that, that I wasn't present while they were raping me. And I can't remember much of it. It's, it's almost like having someone doing something behind your back. You, you can tell people are dancing from the sound or you can tell that they're doing something else. And that's what I remember. I remember the smell, I remember the noises, but I don't remember all of it. Um, when they were done, there, there's someone else who came into the room, and um, you could tell that they, that he, he had a lot of authority because the men, they just stood up really fast and sipped up their pants and tried to look um, put together, and they did a military salute. And he said, "Hand them their clothes. Um, I'm going to finish the job somewhere else." So they cut the ropes, and they hand us uh, our clothes. One of uh, my—I couldn't see well because one of my eye was um, puffed up and just swollen shut. My my mom, I think her. her shoulder was dislocated and she was very bad. I could see that she had a, a lot of trouble breathing. Um, at that moment, I was just, I, was, I think I was numb, but I was also very aware and awake and I, I noticed a lot of stuff. He put us in the car and we drove for a few moments. We got in the central, in the city, and I, I didn't even, want, at one moment, thought of opening the door and just um, jumping out of the car I didn't even think of that I was so tired and numb and in pain and he stopped in town and he told us to get out out of the car i I didn't really understand but he said get out of the car and he yelled at us and so we got out of the car and he said disappear so uh, there was a t- he actually stopped. near a a taxi station so we went into one one taxi and he looked at us the driver looked at us and he was like do you need to go to the hospital and my mom gave him the address of um, our cook we hid there for a few weeks as we were getting ready to leave Burundi Uh, I lived there for a few weeks and although I cannot and I know this sounds weird but I cannot relate to rape I cannot relate to rape because I don't feel like I was present as it was happening I do not think about it every time I take a shower I do not think about every time I eat but what I can relate with is the feeling of dying a feeling of knowing that you're going to die, and that had not left me. Every time I do something, I think of a way... I could be sitting somewhere and think of a car running into me. I see death everywhere. I cannot... I don't feel like I deserve to be alive because I know... Because I was so close to dying. And that, for me, is terrifying. It's, it's like when you are... Walking in a dark alley, and there's, and you can tell that there's someone behind you. That's, that's how death is to me. It's like I'm waiting for something to happen. I still live, as I was living in that small room back in Burundi. Oh, Joanna, I feel,
1: so, I feel undone hearing you. I'm. Um, so moved by how profoundly um, uh, how eloquent you are putting words to such a traumatic experience I wonder is this something that you and your mother can talk about I, I imagine that with all the devastation of what happened to you knowing that this was happening to your mother also is like a whole other layer of devastation how do the two of you connect with this is it possible to or do you each feel so shell-shocked that it makes
0: it hard we haven't talked about it together um the first time that we came to almost talking about it is when we were with our social worker um we just briefly talked about it not in details um we just recently moved into our own apartment uh, up until last week we were leaving with um, a Burundian family that gave us shelter when we arrived here. And we didn't want to unload all of this at someone else's place because we didn't, we didn't know what would come out. And now we just, we know that we're going to have to do that soon. but. We've only been there for a week, um, but we know we'll have to do that, and it's scary.
1: How was it that you were able to leave the country? Did you apply for asylum, or what happened?
0: Um. So what happened is my mom and I decided to leave the country uh, the next day. My mom told me we need to go, and so, um, we spent just I think that that weekend because it was it was the end of the week when that happened the weekend we just stayed in their house and tried to recover um, and then we immediately started the process of leaving so we applied for a tourist visa online um, and we also applied for visas in Belgium we just applied everywhere because we knew that we needed to go somewhere, so if... And we also were trying to gather money because it's extremely expensive to come here. Um, a sing, for me to come, it was $2,700. And we, you have to purchase a round trip, otherwise you cannot come. Um, so I was trying to get all of the money that I had in the bank, uh, sell my car. So we, we spent those few weeks just gathering money to be able to come. Were you worried
1: going to the airport and presenting your passport that you might be very, stopped?
0: Very worried. We went through the customs, constantly looking over our shoulders to make sure that no one was following us. When we got onto the tarmac, we know that maybe we were safe. We got into the airplane and that was it. Nothing happened. Mm. But I think that What happened was that um, the people at the secret services thought we were dead, I think. But of course, if we stayed there, they would have seen us.
1: What is your sense of the man who said he was gonna finish the job, but then let you go?
0: I was certain that he was going to do it. That's, That's what he said. I had no reason to doubt him. But when he let us go, I didn't understand. And I i don't know, I, feel, I felt almost like he was annoying me because we were so close to being done, and now maybe someone is going to run after us and look for us and make us go through all of that again. My mom actually told me that um, he was an acquaintance of her, not a, a close friend or anything, but she once helped his wife that was sick She didn't recognize him right away, but um, she can't even remember his name. We've been trying, but it didn't work. And since you were arrested
1: and and effectively tortured by the Secret Service, I presume that you would
0: have a successful asylum case. Are you applying for that? I'm applying for it. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to work because I, I know that sometimes it's just you cannot have it. Um, so it's, it is scary to know that maybe in two years I'll be denied and I'll have to go back home. But it's a reality that I have to live in and I have to expect that um, if that happens. So obviously you came to this country not
1: having this be a long-term goal. Now that you are here, what is your
0: hope? Do you hope to stay here? What's your vision? Um, I know that some people who will see me um, will think that I think it's hard to relate to the immigrant stories uh, especially when you come running away from conflict but I think it's important for people to know that very few of us or so at least if I, if I talk about myself I didn't come looking for the American dream because I had plenty of my own dreams and most of them were already there. I had a great job that I really loved. I had my family there. And moving here is, it was terrifying. And knowing that I have to start everything over from scratch, that's also terrifying. I'll have to go back to school, um, study, work again, um, find a new career. If it was up to me and if I knew that I would be, safe, I would go back to Burundi in heartbeat. I would go back and work, um, go back to my own desk, um, working in front of my little um, sticky notes that I put everywhere in my, on my wall and just have a normal life. But I know I can't and I won't until a very long time and that's okay. That's okay. I can start over. I'm only, I'm only 27. I can do that. But I want to be somewhere where I'm safe. I want to f- live at least 5 years in a row in a safe place. If I can stay here, I'll be happy to stay because I've been very, very happy. Um and I feel very safe in Maine. I understand
1: that right now you are working for Refugee Services. Tell me a little bit about
0: how you found that job and and what you do. Um, So I am receiving assistance from the city of Portland um, because, as I said, I do not have any financial means here. And that financial assistance comes as a loan, and I have to repay it every month by doing some workfare and I'm so glad that we have to pay it back. I would feel very, very bad having to walk around knowing that every second I spend living here depends on somebody else's money that I would never see and never think. Um, I do my work there at the refugee services and I'm a receptionist and I assist our clients and also our caseworkers.
1: I'm thinking about the work that you were doing at home, you know, gathering women's stories, women empowerment stories. And are you, here you are the receptionist now at this refugee services. Do you find yourself curious to hear
0: the stories of the women who come through the door? I find it very interesting for me because I think I didn't land too far from what I was doing. I still get to hear stories. um, People still get to talk to me and um, I speak I speak five languages, three from Africa and French and English. So most of the people who are waiting for a caseworker and they're talking, I would hear most of their stories. And I can relate sometimes, sometimes I can't. But it's just, it's nice to, to see that I can still listen to stories at least.
1: Joanna, thank you so much for being my guest. I've, it's been truly moving and inspiring to spend this time with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to get involved in supporting other refugees like Joanna or finding out more, I encourage you to go to Immigration Legal Advocacy Project at ilapmaine.org. If you want to stay connected to these issues, you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Safe Space Radio. And you can find us on the web at safespaceradio.com, where you can listen to all of our past shows While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, while you're there, please click on the survey button to give us your feedback about this show. My thanks today to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. Coming up next is Speak Freely.